BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hello, everybody. My name is Ray. Welcome to the Evangelical Dark Web. Today, we will be discussing uh, Trump versus DeSantis, and we have a special guest uh, for today, and that guest is William Wolf. William Wolf is actually, you know, firmly in the pro-Trump camp, which is actually why I wanted to have him on. I, I did want to solicit some disagreement on this issue because I'm more in the DeSantis camp. Anthony's apparently persuadable and vacillating between the two, so I think this is a pretty good combination to have on. But uh, one of the things about evangelical leaders that we see is that a lot of them don't understand politics. Politics worth a lick. And I think that's been very clear in the last uh, few live streams we've covered with, uh, you know, G3 and a bunch of other people in politics. They don't quite understand these issues, but uh, William Wolf is, you know, someone who understands it. And it's because he's worked in politics. He's worked in the uh, Trump administration. So uh, welcome to the uh, live stream. And tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you did in the Trump administration and, uh, you know, what made you transition to being a Christian nationalist thought leader? Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, it's good to be here on the dark web. I hope this doesn't mean that I get a visit from the feds later. Uh, <laughs> so particularly with that scary Christian nationalist banner behind you there, Ray. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I like that. Yeah. Well, so I, um, you know, my entire life, I've had a great interest in politics. I started at, at a young age for me and was really I'd say cemented when I got my first job in high school and uh, realized how much the federal government was already taking out of my paycheck to ostensibly save for my retirement. And I just sort of was flabbergasted by that. So I've always been a fiscal conservative. Uh, I believe that you know men should be able to live free lives as much as possible. I'm not a libertarian, to be clear. Definitely not a libertarian, that's, that's for sure. And uh, so I, after I became a Christian, I moved to DC and I needed work and well, hey, here's Capitol Hill. So I went after getting a job in Congress and uh, by God's grace was able to, and I worked for three different members of Congress. And I'll tell you one of the things that I did for a member of Congress. Which from North three? Carolina. Yeah, um, I worked for Virginia Fox from North Carolina, for uh, Rick Berg from North Dakota, and then for Dave Bratt from Virginia. And in my time in Virginia Fox's office, which was from my home state, 
I was a legislative correspondent. And if you know what that does, uh, if you don't, I'll tell you. A legislative correspondent is a person who responds to constituent mail on behalf of the representative. And so I spent a couple of years reading, you know, the unfiltered, uncut thoughts of unhappy Americans contacting their members of Congress. And I agreed with a lot of their concerns. And they were concerned about immigration. And they were concerned about trade. And they were concerned about economic opportunities. And I don't mean corporate economic opportunities, but economic opportunities that benefit your average American, you know, middle class, blue collar, you know, worker. And then when I worked for Dave Bratt, who had an incredible upset victory, you know, sort of a David and Goliath story when he took down Eric Cantor in 2014, I really sort of caught the bug of, you know, the average man can still win. Look, I know the system is very rigged. I get that. But it's still possible for somebody with the right message who's working on behalf of the people uh, to take it to the man, to take it to the system and come out on top. And that really was, a, I think, a preview of what happened with Donald Trump. And so when Trump ran and what he ran on what I would call is a pretty basic American nationalist platform. And I've always been sort of a nationalist by instinct. I think governments should serve the people that they represent. I've always been America first, even before that phrase was being tossed around. Uh, under the Trump administration. So I was excited to see Trump w- run in 2016, excited to see him win. And at that point, I had been working for Heritage Action, which was sort of the the hard-fighting conservative uh, group in D.C. at that time with a guy named Russ Vogt. And uh, then I volunteered on the presidential transition team. I uh, just you know, gave my time freely to help with the transition in hopes of having a chance to serve in the administration which by God's grace is exactly what happened. I had a chance to go in as a political appointee at the State Department in April of 2017 and serve all the way to the end in January 21. Uh, At that point in time, I was serving as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon doing legislative affairs. I say that I did 45 for 45, 45 months for 45. Didn't quite get the whole four years in there, but just pretty darn close. And it was the greatest honor of my life in terms of my career that I've had so far to represent your interests, you know, Ray and Anthony, everyone else here listening to know that I was fighting on behalf of my American, you know, citizens and the constitution against the deep state, against the executive branch, trying to, you know, execute Trump's uh, agenda as the duly elected president. Uh, so that's what I did. I could go into a lot more details, but was after there, I fit, go ahead. Was there like an impactful policy you made just to well, so I did legislative affairs. So here, let me try. If you've ever watched a congressional hearing, you'll see the main, the main witness like sitting at a table and then you'll see somebody behind that witness taking notes. That was me. But, but what I did, what I did that was impactful in all seriousness was I, I prepared Trump's, you know, Trump's people, ambassadors, generals um, to, to defend the Trump administration policies and priorities before Congress. So, and I liaisoned with Congress. So before we had hearings, I'm talking to all the staffers, I'm getting their questions ahead of time. With friendly members of Congress, I'm giving them questions. I'm saying, hey, if your boss could ask the witness about X, Y, and Z, we'd love a chance to talk about this, you know, from the Trump administration perspective. So I was really trying to bridge the gap. You know, when I worked at the State Department for over three years, people would ask me, hey, do you travel internationally? I was like, yeah, I travel all the time. I go back and forth between the State Department and Congress every single day, which is what I did. I did take one great international trip. I got to go to um, I got to go to Normandy for the 75th anniversary of D-Day. That was incredible. Wow. Um, with a massive congressional delegation. 
but man, it, you know, there were some other policies I worked on to try to get, you know, Trump policies across the finish line legislatively uh, and to defend, to beat back bad policies and efforts from Congress trying to restrict the Trump administration. I mean, it was knife fighting every single day. Um, so it was, it was great work. It was, like I said, legislative affairs is more of a like strategic liaison position that, you know, nobody was saying like, William Wolf write this policy for us. It was more like, you know, hey, defend this policy for us, which I was happy to do. And then, you know, I guess Trump administration exits and then you tra transition more into uh, focusing more on uh, faith based uh, ministry and work. Yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, you know, I'm a Christian. I love God's word. I love the gospel. I love I love good preaching and teaching. And I love helping Christians think, I, I try to put it this way, you know, as humbly as I can, think better. Sometimes people just don't think well. You need to just think better, whatever you're thinking about, and then think more biblically. And really during the run-up to the Trump administration, I was just aghast at the messaging that I saw from so many of our leading evangelical figures. And I could not believe Russell Moore was out there getting paid essentially with my tithe dollars to represent Southern Baptists and was you know, you know, lobbying against Trump essentially was wink, wink, nod, nod. Christians should vote for Hillary Clinton. I was aghast that people like the Bediana Weeble let the let his blog spot on the Gospel Coalition be used to run a blog by a guest, a guest, you know, writer saying pastors tell us to vote for Hillary Clinton. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I, I never would have expected that. Um, and so that really planted a seed in me where I thought we need, we need theologically sound Christian men who are unapologetically conservative and unapologetically working on behalf of their American Christian fellows and not on behalf of, you know, Democrat agents to be in this space. So, I mean, just to put it really, you know, frankly, and, you know, Tucker's off Fox and who knows if I'd ever make it, but it's like, in my mind, I was like, when Tucker Carlson wants to get the evangelical perspective on something, I want him to ask somebody like, me, not somebody like Russell Moore. We need somebody like that. It doesn't have to be me. It could be anybody else. But that's what we need in the in the explicitly Christian political sphere. And that's sort of what I'm aiming for now. Yeah. And I'd like to think that there's a lot more Christians like you than Russell Moore, particularly because Russell Moore has to go outside the church for his audience. Uh, because, you know, who reads Christianity today or compromise today, as I like to call it, not believers. So, right. Right. Well, it's a real sad story, too, if you know the history of Christianity today. And if it you know the history of uh, Billy Graham, right? Well, Billy Graham and Carl F.H. Henry. And it's, it's really fascinating, guys. You know, we've we've lived through about a century of these sort of boom bust cycles between fundamentalists and evangelicals wrestling with how do we engage the culture appropriately? Because I do want to engage the culture. I'm not a retreatist. I, I want to fight and win for the gospel. Uh, but, you know, Christianity Today was founded in the mid 1900s, like 50s or 60s as a reaction to the fundamentalist withdrawal that came after sort of the Machen era and the liberals sort of winning some of the mainline denominations early on. But then over time, Christianity Today compromises itself. And so really we're all faced with this question of how do we faithfully and unapologetically engage the culture for Christ and gospel without compromising sort of to the liberal progressive, you know, agenda and disposition of, of the culture. And I think we can do it better than what we've seen done. Yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, we have you on and one of the things that's in our background, uh, the two of us is we're low, we're 
pretty active in politics locally. Uh, you've apparently been pretty active nationally, which is awesome. And, you know, this is a mission field. This is a place where not only can we get good works, uh, good works in Christianity done, but it's also a place where we can witness people to bring the whole counsel of God into the public square. And I think a lot of Christians, you know, view it as icky. They don't view this mission field as valuable as, say, you know, other mission fields where, you know, you can get a complaint to HR, uh, you know, but there's no HR in politics, generally speaking. So it's like, yeah, this is this is actually more the place where, we, you know, Christians should be more comfortable speaking up, uh, if you ask me. But well, Ray, well, Ray, actually, I could tell you a funny story about the HR I had to deal with at the State Department. It's actually not so ha ha funny, but in retrospect. So I'm working at the State Department. I'm a Trump administration political appointee. And keep in mind that the State Department was previously under the helm of Hillary Clinton. Right. She was the secretary of state. And so during the 2016 election, everybody at the State Department was assuming the coronation of Hillary Clinton as the next president. And that meant that many people would get to go from state to the White House, to the National Security uh, Council, the NSC, to Domestic Policy Council, to you know, plum spots in the West Wing. Well, none of that happened. And so of all the executive branch agencies, there was great weeping and gnashing of teeth at the State Department in particular when Trump won. It might have been one of the most anti-Trump um, environments to work in in the Trump administration. Well, I got slapped one day. I kid you not. I'm walking out of Dunkin' Donuts on Pennsylvania Avenue, and I get this email from HR at State Department from the Office of Civil Rights saying that I've been accused of, uh, you know, I've been accused of some civil rights malfeasance, and I got to come in for an interview. Well, it, as it turns out, at the end of the day, after this whole process, it was just this disgruntled, you know, um, non-political employee who complained actually that another guy made a joke about like this guy apparently was Hindu made a joke about Christmas or something that was inappropriate. And I laughed at it, but it just, it goes to show you that how it's weaponized. Right. And I kid you not, my, my belief is this individual was trying to weaponize the HR process against Trump political appointees. And he was getting as many of us as we could with this totally bunk um, accusation, which I got let off of. But even then it sort of followed me around one time when I was in a conversation for a promotion it got brought up and it just goes to show you how these individuals weaponize the bureaucracy and the HR process yeah, against it, people they don't like. It's like you got some sort of permanent record following you around. Yep. <laughs> and uh, so then you get out, you're trying to reach the church and then, you know, now we're gearing up for the next election cycle. It's good to have an ally like you on board, especially since, you know, you, you become a thought leader in Christian nationalism, uh, which, I, you know, one of the things that I find about Christian nationalism is like, wait, this is you're, you're just coming up with a fancy name for what I've already kind of believed about applying Christianity in the public square. So, you know, it's a fancy name. I think it's a winning name. Like, I think it's a good name to stick by because you're going to get a lot of normies and you're going to get a lot of the more political people involved. You might lose some of the uh, uh, people that are adverse to the term, but I think you'll win some people that are you know, that'll just hop onto the term because they like the idea of nationalism and Christianity. So I, I think it's a winning term for that reason. But uh, it's interesting because you didn't see a whole lot of, we didn't get a whole lot of electoral victories in 2022 from a Christian nationalist perspective. I don't know of anyone who was a Christian nationalist that got elected into office uh, for the first term on a national or state wide level that i know of I, I don't know if you know of any 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know if anybody who, you know who ran sort of was explicitly a Christian nationalist, but you're right, Ray. The the sort of near term origin of how that term, that phrase, that you know name has broken out was a couple of different things. First of all, Trump at a rally, uh, you know, said he's doing his thing, he's going on, and then he goes, you know what, I'm going to say it. I'm not supposed to say it. I'm going to say it. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist. I know that that's a dirty word, but you know what? I think that's a good thing. And so Trump calling himself a nationalist sort of helped spark at the political level um, a renewed conversation about American nationalism. And again, I think it's the appropriate way to describe the overall um, ideological framework of the Trump, uh, the Trump policy priorities. But then you had secular, academic, godless, God-hating, you know, average Christian-hating scholars who were seeking um, sort of a secular rubric and explanation for how Trump got 83% of the evangelical vote, the white evangelical vote in particular. And so they glommed on to Christian nationalism and they decided to try to take it as a term that they could use against us, weaponize against us. But just like you, Ray, when I read one of the, the main books on that issue, I've read many since then, but one of the first ones I read, Taking America Back uh, for God by Samuel Perry and Andrew Whitehead, I just was like, oh, okay, I am a Christian nationalist. And actually, I think that's a pretty cool term. I'm a nationalist. I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm not great at math, but I can do one plus one equals two. And so I'll be happily be a Christian nationalist. And I do think ultimately, despite uh, I know many people, many people will disagree, but I think the term will be a winning term. And I think it will be a term that we recover uh, that many Christians will be happy to own and wear and advance in the public square. All right. And with that said, I think it's now time to transition in a good way to the whole Trump versus DeSantis debate, because you've definitely staked your flag in Team Trump. And then I've been a lot more Team DeSantis. And, you know, and while we're at a little break in the action here, I'd like to remind you all to like this video live stream, subscribe to the channel if you are new or podcast, if you're an audio listener uh, listening, Uh, not live, of course. But anyway, subscribing is how you help with those magical YouTube algorithms. That's the number one thing you can do to help um, if you're new. So with that said, um, you've stated, you know, that you're unequivocally pro-Trump. You think that the regime is more or less afraid of him uh, and that he's the biggest threat to the regime. Can you kind of articulate that view going into 2024? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. Right. So uh, I know Trump is viewed as an existential threat to the American regime because of the way that he was relentlessly persecuted by the, particularly the security state apparatus from the time that he was a candidate through the entirety of his presidency. We all know now what many of us knew many years ago, which is that the Steele dossier was completely uncorroborated, full of totally fake information that was just cooked up by the Clinton campaign in coordination with some, you know, shady intelligence agents, and that that was used as a false pretext to create the Russian collusion narrative and go after Trump, Michael Flynn, and others, etc. And so even before he got into office, I mean, this is, people don't get this, you guys might, but so many don't. The real insurrection, the real coup, the real, um, you know, the real threat to our sacred democracy occurred when the Clinton campaign coordinated with you know, the Obama White House and the security state to try to discredit their political opponent with an outright fabricated lie of the worst kind of treason, of you know, colluding with a foreign 
nation to impact our elections. So, you know, you don't do that unless you think this man is an existential threat. And he was because he's an outsider. He's not beholden to them. He, uh, he didn't come up in Washington, D.C., and he has his own agenda that flies in the face of essentially what you could call the global American empire agenda over the last many decades of, you know, quote unquote, exporting democracy around the globe, endless wars, you name it. And so all through all through Trump's presidency, the threat that he posed to the regime was on clear display in how they targeted him. And again, the trumped up impeachment charges where he's trying to get to the bottom of corruption and money laundering and the Biden and Clinton's malfeasance in Ukraine. And so what do they do? They try to they they do impeach him in the House with Democrat votes. Um, it fails in the, to get conviction in the Senate, but it was totally fake, totally fabricated. And, uh, you know, so their their number one goal, I'm again, I'm not convinced that. Co- and then I think then so we move from the security state to the um, what's the word for it? The global health, the global health conglomeration between the World Health Organization and then even bad actors within the Trump administration, you know, at, you know, at the National Institutes of Health, the CDC sort of transition, the football got passed to them to do everything they could to make Trump a one-term president. And then during, during COVID and during lockdowns, the way that we saw states react to change their, their voting laws, essentially to rob Trump of that sort of Rust Belt wall, uh, again, I think it just speaks to the, to the threat and challenge that he poses. And I don't think that's changed fundamentally as we move forward here. I think that, that, that the, um, wow. the Uniparty fears a Trump second term far more than they would fear a DeSantis first term. I do believe that. Well, I mean, I guess uh, isn't one of the objections, the natural objection being that Trump handed the football to the biopharma state. I mean, he did, I mean, and Pence too. So it's not like he's he's alone in that. But he handed the football to them. He handed the deep state the touchdown, pretty much. Yeah, that's a good point, Anthony. I mean, look, it's 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 hard to. You know, you don't want to sound like you're making excuses. You don't. But the, I mean, the reality is, is that there is just the, the federal government is so massive. What's happening at the CDC, what's happening at the NIH, what's happening, you know, at, at the UN in coordination with all these multinational bodies is, is, is well beyond the purview of somebody, an indi- a single individual like Donald Trump. I mean, yeah, I do think that we should have we should have fired Fauci. We should have fired Deborah Burks. I totally agree with that. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And I do think for many of us, even like myself, who was skeptical of the whole COVID narrative from the beginning, you know, absolutely opposed to the vaccine, et cetera. Even then, though, it's hard to tell as things are unfolding in live time, you know, what's real, what's fake, you know, you know, what, what's the ground truth on this issue? And I'm just saying that I do think that's the case, even in my own experience. Like, it's not until later I can look look back and say, oh, wow, actually was not a huge success, somewhat of a disaster, you know, um, even though I never would have gotten the vaccine myself. Um, so, look, I, I get that point. Uh, I think we've learned a lot of lessons. And I'll put it this way. Uh, this is really important, too. I don't think any other Republican would have done anything differently in the federal position. I understand DeSantis did things differently at the local, at the state and local level, but I think it'd be a stretch to say we could envision another Republican president having done much differently than Donald Trump did during that time. And I, w- that, I would agree because a lot I'm of- a little unconvinced by that, actually. Oh, I mean, I guess you'd have to put a name to it. 
and I don't yeah. know how maybe yeah. maybe maybe Rand Paul would have done something differently. Well, yeah, yeah, Rand Paul would not have capitulated. Thomas Massey and Chip Roy would not have capitulated. Um, because I mean, I, I, I can I name at least a handful of people that wouldn't have capitulated. Yeah, yeah, I, was, I was thinking more from the like your pick Ted your Cruz. Ted Cruz is a would've. little iffy. Pick but, your presidential primary, um, pick your Republican primary option from 2016, right. you know, and, and would they have done things differently? You know, I, I'm not sure. Again, that's I'm not sure Cruz would have gone as hardcore as Trump did. But that also kind of proves how little conviction, like, I mean, someone like a Ted Cruz touts the Constitution, but mm -hmm. he would have violated it nonetheless. Well, yeah. Cruz was nowhere to be found on this issue. And didn't we give him bum of the year in like uh, no, no. We, we gave we gave in twenty twenty one right, no, maybe I don't I don't. So we, I think it's let me try to make this point again here. Uh, you know, and this is really helpful, guys. I appreciate the iterative nature of me getting to like a good defense on this, and it's this: it's that you know we were dealing with sort of an unceasing onslaught of a biomedical emergency, and and it's it, it's like you know it's like hitting the beaches at Normandy, trying to store like you know what's coming against you. And the decisions, especially in those early months when so many of the decisions were, were baked in. And again, I will underscore the fact that the federal government doesn't, quote unquote, shut anybody down. It makes recommendations. I think the recommendations that were coming out of the CDC and NIH were terrible. They were terrible, but you didn't have to follow them. Right? Oh, the it's government, coercion, nonetheless. Trump can tell the CDC what recommendations they can make. I mean, I, I sure. But I don't, I, I think, I don't I, disconnect the, the, lockdowns from because oh it's the states that did it but again when one when the higher magistrates forcing the lower magistrate it's still well given that this well is anthony 20, just to be clear there it's not forcing for uh, well this, this is a, a 2024 discussion so i just kind of want to get back to looking forward not looking back right. and doing replay and one of the things that i wanted to point out is that you know you talk about how we've learned lessons but i'm a little unconvinced that trump has learned any lessons from the lockdowns, even like, you know, I believe it was his last day in office. He gave like commendations to Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks. That was his, like his last day in office. He was giving them like a commendation medal or something like that. And I, I just, I don't see any lessons were learned by the time he got out. Like Fauci was well unpopular with the base. Like I believe in that time, Ben Shapiro finally came down from his ivory tower to say that he should be fired. Um, that's how unpopular uh, Fauci was, but I don't. And then Trump campaigned in 2020 on listening to Fauci, which was a huge mistake. But so we understand that the, you know, some mistakes were made, but I'm not convinced that Trump realizes that he made mistakes. I think he wants to split the baby and say, you know, I was the hero of the story, but he wasn't the hero of the story. I just don't, he just wasn't the worst person that could have been in charge of the story, but it wasn't the hero. And I don't see any lessons learned from that. And that's why I think DeSantis, who seems a lot more self-aware, he seems a lot more contrite in the mistakes that he made, he made, whereas Trump, you know, was a vaccine salesman as early as January this year, or as late as January this year. So, I'm not convinced that he's learned any lessons. And to, I think to a lot of people, his ambivalence in like lessons learned or mistakes made is a deal breaker. Anthony, you want to weigh in anywhere there before I respond? Oh, no, no, go ahead. Okay, great. 
Yeah, well, look, Ray, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's, really, it's a really significant you know, a point to bring up, but I don't think it's insurmountable. And, and I'll put it like this. I really do think that you need, to, you need to consider the totality of the administration, right? So, look, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am, I am as adamant about accountability for you know, COVID malfeasance as, as anyone out there. I mean, I, I, I've landed in hot water and not too many months ago for, for saying that you know, particularly pastors need to be held accountable. Churches should like, you know, members at churches should seriously go, go to their elders and go to their pastors and be like, why did you lead us the way that you did? Yeah, how, and many, are you ever, how many pastors said that this is a miracle of modern science? Sure, are you, are you ever gonna do this again? But when we look at I mean, COVID dominated, COVID dominated the final chapter of the Trump administration. There's no doubt about that. But but before that final chapter for three years, I mean, we were rocking and rolling. When when we look back, we didn't we didn't start any wars. We drew down troops. We had the best foreign policy that I think any Republican administration has had in decades. The economy was booming. You know, Trump, you know, out, Trump outperformed in so many different demographics and, and, and policy points of concern overturned Roe v. Wade. So what I'm going to, I'm going to weigh things on a whole balance, right? From the, from the entire Trump administration, from, from our four years that we had in office. And I'm going to weigh it in the balance of what I said earlier, which is the fact that Trump was doing all this while he was taking slings and arrows from the security state, the corrupt security state the entire time. And so when I think of what we could get done in a Trump round two, in a second administration where COVID is not on the table and where we're dismantling the security state, I mean, I just, that makes me excited, guys, you know, because, and look, I mean, we do have to think about this. Uh, I, I cannot imagine that something like COVID is going to happen again in the near term. And if anything like that were to happen again in the near term, I do, I have, I actually have great confidence, and I'll be very fair here. I have great confidence that whether it's Trump or DeSantis or any other Republican in the White House, when something like COVID happens again, that we are not going to have the same policies at the federal level. I'm very, and I'll give that to DeSantis. And I do think that I think that Trump and the people around him would would certainly govern differently if something like that happened again. But guys, I really don't think it's going to. Okay. Well, the next issue I want to talk about is staffing because this was probably the most glaring weakness of the Trump administration all four years, not just you know year four. Uh, Trump was terrible at staffing his administration just as a pass fail on a pass fail basis. Or if you want to say, you know, 50 percent of them were bad, which is an F. Um, he wasn't very good at staffing his administration. And I'm not entirely sure how self-aware he is of that. I think he's a little self-aware that some people were mistakes, you know, after he fired them. But there's a lot of people that he didn't fire you know, like, again, he gave a commendation to Anthony Fauci on his one of his final days of office. So I'm I mean, not the two, the two totally convinced ones. that his staffing would be significantly better in the second term. And the two gifts that keep on giving are Jerome Powell and and Christopher Ray, as far as his two appointments that are still actively giving. Yeah. So uh, so this I've been trying to think of the best way to, to put this, which is that, uh, you know, Again, there are ways that Trump could have been better in the first administration, no doubt. But consider some of the staffing choices of our previous Republican presidents, right? Consider the staffing choices that gave us the Iraq war, you know, uh, and, and look back at like, you know, the Republican Party, people don't, people kind of forget this. Like the Republican Party at a national level was one massive blob of like neocon loser-ishness all over the place. Trump, 
Trump stepped in uh, and in my opinion, really like single-handedly like saved the Republican party in 2016 at the national level. And if it hadn't been Trump, uh, I think anybody else most likely would have lost to Clinton. I'm going to disagree with you right there on that policy. Cause I think Rand Paul, Ron Paul deserves the credit for being the spearhead of the Republican Party's shift against neoconservatism. His, oh, his I love Ron Paul. Paul. Uh, was basically championed by, like, the Ron Paul vote didn't go to Rand Paul in 2016. It went to Donald Trump. So. Well, so what I'm saying, I'm talking about in terms I, of. I like, think, yeah, I was just. Tangible outcomes. Right. Like, I mean, I don't think, unfortunately, I mean, I love, I, I think I'd like to live in a country where Ron Paul could be elected president, though, again, I'm not a libertarian. Um, but, you know, uh, that'd be better than than other individuals. But again, it's like you have to think of somebody who who, who is actually going to be able to win at the national level. And look at what happened with McCain and Romney. Right. Like those guys could not win at the national level. And those are some horrific choices that the Republican Party fielded. But what I'm trying to build to is a staffing point, which is that, like, you got to you got to also remember Trump wins nobody expects him to and immediately the the apparatus that is set up for Trump to inherit whether he wants to or not is an apparatus of of rhinos and you know neocon losers right like and he has to deal with these people at these high levels in the Republican party i mean there are other people trying to help him out right like so we he had Bannon in right i wish Bannon had never left and I really hope that Trump and Bannon get back together, like get the team back together, because I think Bannon in many ways is the political strategist embodiment of sort of the Trump ethos. And so you did have Bannon in the White House for a little bit. And also, you, you guys got to remember, we had people like Stephen Miller, too, who's, I think, absolutely hands down one of the best immigration strat pro-American immigration strategists. And Miller was in the entire time just absolutely crushing it at the White House. So so when you think of staff, yes, there was bad staff and there's particularly bad staff at some of, you know, some of the critical security state agencies, FBI, CIA, et cetera. But we had, we had good staff in other places. And I would challenge everybody that, you know, that still it's better than what we would have had with your classic Republican establishment character. And I think it's only going to get better in the next term. Would you okay. say it would be better than under DeSantis administration? That, you know, that's hard to say, you know, like, um, I don't know if DeSantis would ask me to come work for him. You know, I'm, I'm pretty confident I'd get in in a Trump round too. We'll see. I could be wrong. But, um, you know, that that's a good question. I think that there are, I'll put it this way. Like, honestly, guys, the bench is thin. Like, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a, I'm a unicorn in a land of rhinos guys. Like there are so many people out there, you know, who, who even like they're, they're, they're ideologically not aligned with any of us and not with the Trump base and not with Trump priorities and policies. And yet they're able to conjure up this like veneer of America first or MAGA, and then they get in and they just subvert it. But you know, the vast majority of DC, even right now, guys, I can tell you this, the vast majority of Republican staffers across DC are rooting against Trump. The exact same way they were rooting against Trump in 2016. You know, they didn't really have a choice in 2020. But I, I guarantee you, 90% of the people who work for your member of Congress, whoever that is, do you have a Republican member of Congress or no? No. Okay. But 90% of Republican staffers in D.C. right now are rooting against Trump. What does that tell you? I don't know, man. I want to be in that 10%. That's not. I mean, I guess the question is why they're rooting against Trump. Because, again, like the weird thing about DeSantis is you got the worst Republicans supporting him, but you also got some of the best Republicans supporting him as well. So... And then I think the, you know, you got some of the best Republicans supporting uh, Donald Trump, but you also have like Laura Loomer supporting Donald Trump as well. So I, 
it, it's a little, you know, th there's bad parties on both, uh, in both camps. And I do think, you know, the point of this discussion is yes, we do want to, uh, uh, you know, we do want to unite around the winner as, uh, Montana, Montana Viking alludes Viking. to in the chat. And that is the point of this discussion. We're trying to have a strategy discussion about what, which strategy is the best to, uh, you know, follow which candidate, you know, should we get behind? Uh, because, you know, we got one shot to, you know, oust Joe Biden because they're going to run him. They're not going to oust him and have Kamala or Gavin Newsom. That's not going to happen. And I RFK, don't know. RFK Jr. is a fantasy on the right wing. Like there's not he's not going to like I might get more delegates than him. He's not going to do anything in South Carolina. Uh, he's going to get wrecked. Um, I don't see that going anywhere. But because the Democrats are a hive mind, like. They, they unified around Joe Biden in like 30 hours prior to Super Tuesday to get him the primary win. So along these lines is I want to win. I think that's kind of like priority number one. And I'm kind of unconvinced that Donald Trump has a pathway to victory, because if you look at the elect election fortified zone, like what exactly is his pathway to victory here? Well, look, I mean, the pathway to victory for any Republican candidate always starts as an uphill climb, right? There's just no way. So if you want to be practical, and again, this is the way I try to think about Donald Trump is I try to think about Donald Trump uh, in the context of, you know, Republican politics writ large, asking questions like, would anyone actually be better? Does anyone actually have a better chance? So this map, I think, Ray, stands for DeSantis. It stands for Trump. It stands for Tim Scott. If Scott was our nominee, right? Like you've got to win. We've got to win Georgia. We've got to win at least one out of Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. We, you know, Arizona is really important. I, you're moving here quickly. So as you can uh, get, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put, uh, I don't know which district in Maine is the bad district or the good district, but to me, this is Trump's ceiling. This is giving Trump every victory that I think he can get. Mm-hmm. And I'm not super confident in Michigan or Pennsylvania or well, Wisconsin. Yeah. Or I mean, Arizona. those are going to be Arizona. <laughs> I mean, or those. Georgia. Well, <laughs> all right. So here, there are six states, right? You can, I'm confident you can, in Georgia. You can bring it. But here's the thing. You can bring it down to six states for just for every for whoever our Republican nominee is in the general election. You, you, you know, you've got and I'd put North Carolina in there, too. Right. So I put North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan. And, you know, there, there's a combo of those six states that you have to hit in order for us to see a Republican come back into the White House. And, and what, with what the Democrats have done with changing election laws, in particularly in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, it's, it, it's a huge lift. I mean, there's no way around it. Again, you know, McCain failed, Romney failed, and, and then Trump won in 2016. And then I think, I think he was cheated out of his election in many ways in 2020. That's not news to anybody. I think the 2020 election was rigged against Donald Trump um, and intentionally so. So, I mean, you tell me, like, you think, are you hey, just well, saying you think DeSantis well, again, is the biggest thing on DeSantis? The, the problem with the whole election is, narrative is who, you know, gave him the keys to do that. Uh, and obviously, I think the Republicans are going to get their act together when it comes to mail-in ballots. But I, I want to show you this because I think this is DeSantis's ceiling. Okay. Uh, I think he could flip Virginia. Really? Yes. I think it's in play. 
maybe he makes a strategic decision like a Glenn Youngkin VP candidate or something like that. But I think it's in play. I think that's the ceiling. I don't know if we have a comfortable ceiling. Like I think he can get the Wisconsin back on board, you know, with the amount of people that voted for Ron Johnson would vote for him and maybe, but I don't think. He, uh, let I me just let me disagree with you on that real quick, particularly on Wisconsin. Here's the problem. There's a Trump, there is a Trump presidential voting block that, that we haven't really seen materialize for off year voting. Like they're, tr and this, I mean, there's no way around this. They're Trump yeah, people. Mean, they're not Republicans. They're, they're not reliable voters. No, no, they're not. The thing is, they're not Republican voters. They're Trump voters. They're, they were Obama vote. A lot of them were Obama voters and then Trump voters. And they like, they like, there's something about Trump that galvanized, you know, a certain segment of uh, the American people in certain areas of our country that other ones don't. But I will just jokingly say, man, DeSantis, Youngkin, that's like, <laughs> that's like DC consulting class. Like, I don't like Youngkin, all the way. I don't I, like Youngkin, but I think, I think it's an electoral juggernaut of a pick for VP. I, think I mean, it's I think Youngkin strategically. Youngkin's but I don't like is, Youngkin. Youngkin's stock has considerably dropped given his recent comments on transgenderism, but. But I mean, I, he, he would have been a, I think he could a, flip Virginia. a most politically strategic because, again, that's what Hillary Clinton was banking on in 2016 with Tim Kaine as her, as her VP. She didn't think yeah. Trump could bust bust the Rust Belt and right. wanted to lock down Virginia because that was the tradition. Like prior to Trump, that was the pathway oh, to victory. I, I, I missed through Virginia. Though. I did flip, miss something. Flip Virginia back. I, I mean, I, Nevada, I, I, Nevada, I think DeSantis can win. Flip Virginia back to blue. And what are we at here? We're at right, 270. 270 yeah. And so we've, we've got North Carolina. Uh, with, uh, okay, see, that's the thing. Flip, if you... Uh, okay, I mean, Wisconsin's here, you know, particularly with the recent election in Wisconsin, I think that that's, it's going to be tough. I mean, you've got to get... With okay. the map out, take Wisconsin off, and with the map as it is, you've got to get one of them between Wisconsin, Michigan, well, and Pennsylvania. Well, at this map, it's 269-269 if we yeah. win the first district in Maine. Yeah, and win all the districts in Nebraska. Right? Didn't did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like I mean, I think Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania could still potentially go for Trump. You know, one of the, when I when I was, I was always confident Trump was going to win. Like I had that just sense. But I drove up to a, a Penn State game actually with my wife. My wife's family's big Penn State fans. Drove up to a Penn State game uh, in the in the fall of 2016, and I think October before the election. I was like, let me just count count signs. I mean, totally anecdotal, unscientific polling, but man, it was like, it was like a hundred plus signs I counted for Trump to like less than 10 Clinton signs. I mean, I think, I think there's a remnant right, of the Trump base in Pennsylvania that can still, I think well, Pennsylvania is still gettable for Trump. Pennsylvania is one of those states where you can put political signs on highways. <laughs> there's just no rules up there. I know. It's, I mean, it, it, I, my point is, I think that there's a remnant of Trump country in Pennsylvania that could potentially be reignited. So I, I'm not like I don't think, you know, Glenn Young, I don't want Glenn Youngkin, but I don't like a lot of people are trying to label DeSantis as this establishmentarian candidate. And I don't necessarily see that. Um, I, I, I think there's a you know, I guess there's a charitable way to look at things. And I don't. I don't see it like that because him getting, you know, what he's done in Florida is not establishmentarian. Like he's actually done like his term as governor governor because of his legislative accomplishments, I think is superior to Trump's term as gov, uh, as president. So I'm saying that 
DeSantis as governor of Florida had a better performance than Trump as president of the United States. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, they're the same. I'm not saying that they're equal in their difficulty. But, you know, you have DeSantis like, you know, do we really want to wait until 2028 to run this guy for president? And from his perspective, there's no incentive to wait because if Trump loses in 2024, which I don't think he'll win in 2024, because I think they're just going to do whatever they, you know, they just can run the same playbook again. Um, you know, Trump's just going to run again in 2028. Oh, well, I, I doubt that. I mean, I wouldn't, I just, I mean, so Ray, I would disagree with you. I don't think you can, I don't think you can compare you know, a DeSantis governorship to a, to a Trump presidency. I mean, governorships often, you know, are a path to the presidency. I understand it's an executive, it's an executive position, different than Senator, different from, uh, different from Congressman. But, I, you know, I, I'm not quite sure that is, that is comparable. And I do think, again, so I think that we are all dealing with a little bit of a COVID amnesia on, on just the absolute wins that we were racking up in the Trump administration particularly on the economic front for, again, not for corporations, but for the average American worker. Your, you know, your 401ks were rising, you know, inflation was down, your take-home pay was up, your taxes were lower, you know, we were cracking but down. All that was undone. All of his me? economic record was undone. Well, we, not, have Biden, we have Biden in the White House. Oh, yeah. Because Biden's of Trump's like, lockdowns. Biden's though. all hold my beer and make it worse. But I, again, <laughs> I don't think you should get credit. I don't think you can say your economic record is three-fourths of your presidency. You have to include the whole – like a sports team, you have to count every game of the season. You can't just count the the winning streak at the beginning when you proceed to lose every game yeah, after. It's kind of like the Atlanta Falcons when they started off 6-0 and and then didn't make the playoffs. You know, and isn't, they didn't that, fire isn't their, that every year? <laughs> they that they didn't fire their coach for that, and then their coach, I believe, took them to the Super Bowl the next year, and then they lost to the Patriots. After yeah, well, up twenty five points. Anthony, so, I agree with you. Just to be clear, Anthony, I, I agree with you. But my point is, like, again, I'll be honest. I'm hearing from a lot of DeSantis folks. They they have a you know, and you were earlier like, hey, let's try to look forward a little bit. I would like to look forward a little bit, but I'm saying if we are going to look back. You can't just look at, to be fair, you, you have to weigh the whole thing. You can't just, you know, and, and again, you guys might not, you know, we might weigh some certain things differently, but man, I got to tell you, particularly because I worked in this area, State Department, DOD, the fact that we did not, not only did we not start any more useless wars and forever wars, but brothers, we were actively getting our guys home. I mean, we were trying to draw down our troop presence in Africa, trying to draw down our troop presence in Europe. We're making NATO pay more for their share of defense of Europe, making Germany pay more. We're embarrassing these pompous, you know, leaders on the global stage. I mean, again, like I, I, that's a big thing to me. And I think it's a big thing to many of our uh, men and women in the services. And uh, particularly with what's on the international horizon right now, with, with Ukraine, with a resurgent Russia, but even more importantly, with an absolutely, you know, out of control, aggressive uh, China that I think, and Trump is not going to, you know, blink with them at all. I think we need, we need a realist like Trump back in the Oval Office to help lead us through, honestly, what's become one of the most tumultuous international periods that we've lived in, in our lives, right? The battle for sort of the future of the global order 
is on the line. And I don't mean that in the sense that I want America to sort of like lead a democratic global order, you know, one world government. No, I think we need a resurgent nationalism that sort of stre that strengthens America and tends to our own first, but also keeps us safe and beats back the threats appropriately, but not with getting us into more wars. So, I mean, right. But yeah, Trump, I'm not sure would have done much differently on the Ukraine situation. I don't know DeSantis's position. Like to me, DeSantis's weakness as a candidate is, I think he's a little too pro-Israel. Uh, and that gives a lot of neocon vibes, but I don't know whether he's trying to appease the pro-Israel crowd because, you know, we can talk about how Jews control the media, uh, but we can also talk about how, you know, where is DeSantis's weakness uh, in the Republican primary, it's boomers and boomers are very pro-Israel. So I think DeSantis is trying to court the boomer vote uh, because I think the younger vote tends to stray more DeSantis and the older vote goes more uh, Trump. And, you, you know, for that reason, I think DeSantis is a real uphill battle in the primary cycle. But and then on Ukraine, like Trump was bragging about how much he gave to Ukraine in lethal arms and lethal ammunition. So well, I, I don't know whether he would have not funded the Ukrainian World War Three that we're, they're losing. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty confident that we would like I'm pretty confident that we would have a different approach to Ukraine and we were having a different approach to Ukraine under the Trump administration in general and 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 a, a different approach to, you know, interventionism, to global, you know, global, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Global adventurism, right? Like we were very anti-interventionism, anti-global adventurism. And I think that that would continue to uh, be the case in, right. in Trump's second but term. He did still bomb Syria for, you know, using chemical weapons on Al-Qaeda. So well, we had some limited interventions. I mean, we killed, uh, we killed, um, yeah, Iranian. I'm blanking yeah, on Iranian that right now. I can't believe I'm forgetting. They, they're, they're all like Suleimani's or Khomeini's yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, we killed Suleimani. I mean, that was, I think that was, a, that was a provision, a precision targeted strike that was absolutely, you know, worth doing. So, I mean, there's, there's ways to use applied force, you know, in a realist, in a, you know, in a realist foreign policy framework. And he I did look, wreck ISIS after the Obama administration made ISIS. These are good yeah. things to point out. Yeah. Yeah. So, so back to what Anthony was saying and, and what you're saying, Ray, is that I do think as we go forward here and wherever you are, and I appreciate this dialogue because my point is not to look, I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to chastise people for supporting DeSantis. You know, I'm not going to wave my finger at them. You know, there are, you know, if you're supporting the feelings Nikki Haley, mutual, just want to yeah. say that if you're supporting Nikki Haley, we might have some other, I might have some other, <laughs> right. for you. Or, Vivek. Honest... or Vivek, we got to have yeah. a talk. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, look, the reality is, is it's going to come down, you know, I think it's going to come down to Trump versus Santos. And we got a long way to go, right? We, I, I don't think we're going to have much reliable, much reliable feedback until we start seeing some early returns, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. That said, I will say that I, I've got, I think that DeSantis maybe is going to kind of be the next Scott Walker. Like if I'm trying to think of like, who, you know, Scott, if you guys remember, and that's the thing too, I don't know how old you guys are. I know, I think I'm a little bit older. I, I than remember both of going you. into 2020, yeah. our first, our 2016. Presidential was 2016. Yeah. Our, our, to vote, that is. Um, not necessarily to pay attention, but I don't, I guess I don't remember in 2015 how big Scott Walker was because, oh. like, I'm on the lookout. Like, I liked Rand Paul. Uh, Rand Paul would have been probably my first choice going into the primary, but he just sucked on that debate stage. 
He sucked. Well, that's another big point, though, too, guys, right? Like, I mean, this really matters. I mean, personal presentation, people vote with, guys, people vote with their guts. They don't vote with their heads. I mean, that's just honestly, like, that's, that's in many ways, that's how most people vote. I hope as thoughtful Christian brothers, we do a little bit more than that. But Scott Walker, I mean, he was huge. Like, he had taken on the teachers' unions, and he had, you know, worked to reform taxes. And, I mean, he was like the next conservative governor star, and he just flamed out. And so... Again, you know, I it'll be interesting quit. to see. Like he just quit, right? I I don't no. know how it happened, but yeah, you like you thought he was going to be something, but then he just didn't. But no, he ran, and he just he he didn't get anywhere. Yeah, he was like one of the first people out of the. Yeah, of the I primaries. remember him being out very early, but it's like I, I don't remember why because it's like there wasn't a debate yet, and and I see uh, your point on the Scott Walker thing. Like, I mean, again, the, just the look problem. At, look yesterday at his announcement. He did it on Twitter. It wasn't really, you know, a disaster. I mean, Trump, I mean, I don't like Trump's trolling on that. He should have just said, I like it. You know, I like my politicians to speak, show their face when they speak to their supporters. And then Trump makes a joke about how he has a beautiful face. That's what he should have responded with. But I mean, he's cozying up to Elon Musk, which I think is a horrible decision. I think it's strategic. Uh, It's strategic, but it's dumb. It's like having the bride upstaged by a, someone that's way like you know supermodel you just you don't upstage your candidate with the world's richest man so i think he's getting a little too cute with elon musk for his launch and then obviously maybe some of the daily wire connections are a little little too there a little too problematic but again how are you going to win in a primary if you don't weaponize your media connections because elon musk claims that his thing is you know you know his platforms open but no one's going to follow in ron DeSantis's wake on the whole announcement on twitter thing no one's going to do that uh they'll look pathetic doing it for not only copying his idea but no one there's no one left that would get nearly as much traction entering the race uh for president because you know the most popular people have already gone gone in the ring assuming that joe biden already announced um so yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not really that like i mean i, I don't I would not characterize the launch as a quote unquote disaster. I, I don't mean, think I, I would say it's an unforced error. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Look, I mean, look, I, I, I got to say, though, it. I'm trying to be, again, I'm trying to be charitable. Like, I want to be, I want to be a strike caller, e- even though I'm certainly backing Trump. Like, I think I appreciate the, I appreciate the ingenuity in it. And let me, and let me put it from this perspective. Like, I really appreciate the end round around the traditional media, the end run around traditional media. I mean, so actually, you know what? I, I was thinking through this, like, if I were to have pr- proposed something differently, here's maybe what I would have done if I was DeSantis. I would have had a regular standard, you know, live and in-person announcement. And then instead of going to any media outlet afterwards, I would have immediately gone to like a live sit down conversation that's only on Twitter spaces. And so then everybody who like, so it's like, you know, you can only join in if you're on Twitter, if you were trying to use like an alternative media source to get your message across and sort of like, you know, just ignore the mainstream media. I mean, we saw Trump, like Trump is a different approach, right? Trump is confrontational with the mainstream media. He's happy to go on to their turf. We saw him just recently do the CNN town hall, which I thought was classic Trump in the way that he handled that situation. Uh, and people like to see that. So Trump likes to go, Trump likes to go on to the mainstream media turf and go toe to toe with them when he can. And so different approaches. I'm not going to, I'm not going to hold that against DeSantis. And honestly, I think by the time we get 
to, you know, by the time we get to the debate stage, I don't think it's really going to matter. That's, that's where I'm at. I mean, again, I think the idea is looking forward because that's what I'm more interested in doing. I think Trump, you know, him trying to take revenge, you know, that's to me, it'd be like, to use an analogy, that'd be like Tom Buck being your candidate for president of the Southern Baptist Convention. He'd be too. Oh man, I love that. Per- <laughs> he'd be too focused on his own personal issues. I don't think he'd be an effective candidate or man in the office. But I don't think anyone from uh, G three or the CBN would be very effective. But that's just my hot take for another day. But and any give me give me Tom Buck, dude. I'll take him anytime. Let's go. <laughs> uh, anyway, but, keep going. Uh, the reason why I liked the idea of DeSantis cozying up the the Elon Musk and the, you know, in that Joe Rogan crowd, so to speak, you know, those people that are disaffected from the Democrats. They're basically disaffected liberals because we need to grow the Republican Party. And what DeSantis did in Florida, yes, he had a lot of, you know, immigration, so to speak, you know, Republicans just, you know, fleeing to Florida as refugees from lockdown states that had, you know, that definitely bolstered Florida because they gained three congressional seats, I believe, uh, in the census. So yes, they have some, you know, influx of population working in their favor, but he also terraformed the crap out of that state because uh, he won by nearly 20 points. So he terraformed the crap out of that state to make it redder. We need to do that with the country. And Trump in four years did not do that. I get that he was under attack. And perhaps that's why he wasn't able to do that. Like, but we need someone who can do that. Like with Ron DeSantis, I see more cesarean politics than I do in Donald Trump. So I don't think Donald Trump is cesarean enough for me. You know, William Wolf wants to talk about his, you know, Christian prince, so to speak. Stephen Wolf. Stephen Wolf. Sorry, sorry. I'm looking right at you. (laughs) Looking right at your beautiful face. And I say, uh, the other, the wrong name, or give you credit for someone else's work, which you know you could take it as a compliment. So, yeah, Stephen Wolf's book about you know the Christian prince and all that. DeSantis well, could be that Christian prince. Well, Ray, I mean, just just you know, from a voting number perspective, Don, Donald Trump now has you know the two highest voting totals for the Republican Party in the history of presidential politics. I mean, Trump. So this is actually this is really interesting, man. This is one of the very critiques that was levied against Trump in 2016 and Trump outperformed Romney all across the board, outperformed him in total votes, outperformed him demographically with, you know, with Hispanic, you know, like after the 2012 loss, there was this whole autopsy on what the Republican party needed to do to attract Hispanic voters. And, and thank goodness off on immigration. Yeah. And thank goodness that was never implemented. And then Trump came hard as a brick on securing the border taking care of getting illegal immigrants out of here, stopping the cartels, stopping the trafficking, and Trump increased his share of Hispanic voters. And then he increased it again. And after four years of being painted and labeled as the most racist man in the world, Trump got more Hispanic and more African-American votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. So I actually do think that the numbers show that, I mean, more and more people are voting too, right? We had more people vote you know, and if you believe it, if you believe it, Biden, you know, Biden got more votes than Obama. Um, but, you know, and more votes than Clinton. I'm not sure I believe so, it. But he made so that I up. I think he is he growing the party. He, he made that up through men. He couldn't have done worse with women unless he started dropping racial slurs. That's the only way he could have done worse with black women. But he got like 5%. Yeah, but he well, made 15% of the men. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. He did get. But, I mean, that's so that's there's the no. Part, that's the strategy that needs to be exploited. Is how do you get those men? Well, and again, the Elon Musk, Joe Rogan type crowd. Yeah, you know, DeSantis, I think, is doing really well in that. But the thing about the Hispanic vote is, I think they, you know, Hispanics appreciate bravado. Like they're the only ones who like Trump's first debate performance against Biden because you know it was like more bravado. Like Hispanics like actually like that Trump that they saw. Interestingly enough, a lot of other people didn't. And I think DeSantis can maintain that, but he can also get the, you know, suburban women who just can't even, who, you know, think mean tweets is the moral equivalent of dead babies. Like, I I hate to say it, but we need those votes too. And those votes actually show up on game day in the off year elections because the Trump, you know, you mentioned the Trump voters, the, the, you know, the unique Trump voters, they don't show up. They're not reliable voting. They're not reliable voters uh, for Republican candidates because they didn't show up in Pennsylvania in 2022. And I'd say they didn't show up in a lot of places, but, you know, Trump blamed the pro-life vote. Well, the, the, I mean, this is something again, that you guys can't take for granted, which is just sort of the, the Republican party has, you know, for, for years now, just absolutely, you know, um, I'm trying to think of how I can put this politely. They, they hate their base, right? The Republican party hates their base and the base recognizes that. And so along comes somebody who's running as a Republican and doesn't hate the base, but loves the base. And for, for, for millions of people, that's Donald Trump. I mean, on my space last night, uh, you know, I think one of the guys that really, you know, I hosted a Twitter space to chat. Thanks for joining Ray, you know, about Trump and DeSantis. And one of the guys who I think really channels like the Trump energy is in some ways is Michael Foster. He's a pastor in Ohio. And that, and that guy is, like I think in many ways, your quintessential Trump, Trump voter, Trump base individual who probably has nothing but disdain for the general Republican Party, and I don't blame it, blame it at all. I do as well. And so those people, it's not that they're unreliable. It's just that they they're not giving their time and their energy to a party that hates them, but they're willing to give their time and their energy to a man who said he was going to fight for them. And I'm here arguing tonight with you guys that I think Trump did fight for those people um, throughout the entirety of his administration. And that he's going to fight those people again in 24 if he gets in. I mean, that's that's the case that's got to be made. Um, but again, I don't think DeSantis wouldn't fight because he definitely fought for the Republicans in Florida. I think that's undeniable. And, to, you know, the idea of Trump without the baggage. Because I, I, I think don't think that exists. I think it can exist because, again, the mean tweets equals dead babies moral equivalency that you saw out of the out of a lot of people. That objection would actually be removed, you know, um, from a large segment of voters. I think that objection could be removed. Doesn't mean that Trump's going to win all the suburban white women, because I think women I don't want to say women are a lost cause. But if you look at the you know, what defines you know, Republican and Democrat is more most likely um, what your views on gender roles are. If you believe in more traditional gender roles, you're a Republican. Congratulations. And if you reject traditional gender roles, you're you're a Democrat. I think that's the dividing line in our culture. And I wrote that after the uh, 2020 election, I believe, because that's kind of what the results were showing. Because, you know, obviously we know that single women are the most liberal voting bloc in existence. And we know that, you know, married women are significantly more conservative 
than single women. So, you know, just interesting, you know, and then Hispanics are increasingly, you know, not rejecting gender roles nearly to the same extent that the Democrats are. So I think we've seen a realignment on those bases. And I think Donald Trump or not Donald Trump, I think Ron DeSantis is very credible at articulating traditional gender roles in not only his personal life, but in his policy decisions in Florida. Um, but we'll see. I agree. I mean, that's, I mean, I agree with you on that. And that's great. You know, like, again, I want to, uh, I'm not here to bash DeSantis. I'm not here to bash DeSantis. Um, I'm not here to, to bash DeSantis supporters. Uh, and, you know, I, again, I, I have, I, I do think that there's no way around the fact that he represents the establishment in a way that Donald Trump certainly did not in 2016 and still doesn't, right? Like just because you, just because you did a, a four-year stint in the Oval Office after never having been in office before, to think that that somehow makes an individual like a career politician, well, it absolutely doesn't, right? Like tr- Trump is is still not today a career politician. He 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 won the most shot one of the most shocking upset victories to go straight to the White House, you know, as the start of his political career. Whereas DeSantis has taken a much more established track in terms of you know working in a you know big law firm no oh, even his Congress, even his military even his military career is more like i mean i i, I would minded. actually agree that desantis's career track is someone who wants to be president i also don't think that's a bad thing like we need to have a bench of politicians right so um you know just one of the things that i'm doing is i'm impl- i'm applying for a vacancy in our local central committee you know, what's the job of a central committee? It's to recruit viable candidates. So, and, you know, replacements and filling vacancies and stuff like that. So that's, that's the job, but we need to have a bench of people who are ready to, you know, ascend to higher office. Like that's what we need. And that's what the Republican party is uh, doing. We're actually starting to build a bench. You see that in the state legislatures, the state legislatures are a lot more conservative than the governor's uh wouldn't you agree i think i think generally that's that's the case but here yeah where that's not the case was florida like ron DeSantis inherited a legislature a state legislature that enacted gun control prior to his uh take over that office and he's actually you know i don't know if he's repealed the red flag laws that they instituted in florida but he's done like constitutional carry and permitless carry and stuff like that so I think just permitless carry. Um, so he's done that. Whereas I think Trump's record on guns is actually bad because he did the bump stock ban. So uh, that's, yeah, again, that, that's going to weigh in. And then obviously with it, it, a lot of this has to do with looking forward. And I see DeSantis as someone with a vision for uh, building upon what Trump did. Cause I think Trump's a net positive. Like, yes, I, I, I can't clearly say as you, like you say, you're not here to diss DeSantis. I mean, I can't not diss Trump to say that we should move on from Trump. Like that's just factually not how I can make this argument. Um, or it's not a logical path to make the argument for DeSantis because I, I think just on the issues that matter to most Republican voters, I think DeSantis has a, you know, a lot of these hot button issues, I think DeSantis is stronger on. He's apparently stronger on the the life issue moving forward uh, at the federal level. And then he's better on the gun issue. Uh, immigration, I think they're about even 
interestingly enough, Trump did not have the strongest immigration position in 2016, but anytime immigration was a conversation, uh, he was winning that conversation because that was his issue. So I, and then obviously anything to do with transgenderism and homosexuality, DeSantis is a much stronger candidate. Well, actually, Trump has put out a very aggressive uh, plan to eliminate transgender ideology. And Trump's put out, I, I think, you know, I, I did notice, too, that in the announcement yesterday, DeSantis was essentially just, you know, repeating the Trump immigration, immigration agenda, which it's like, hey, it's a good agenda, right? Everybody should. It is a good agenda uh, on paper. So it just needs yeah. to get in. I have no, yeah, I have, I have no doubt that at the federal level, you know, that we will, if Trump is in again, that he will dismantle, you know, ridiculous transgender ideology that, that is, you know, currently being enacted at the federal level in any way that you can, um, you know, under Biden. I have no doubt he'll roll that back. He's not going to, he's not going to promote any of that. And I, know, I, I, and despite whatever his own personal beliefs may be, I mean, we rolled the dice on this in 2016 in certain ways. And, you know, we, 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 we won, right? Like we, whatever Donald Trump's personal beliefs were, he ran as a pro-life candidate and appointed pro-life judges. And uh, I, again, I'm going to run, as I look forward, I am going to consider the track record, which tells me that Trump was the most pro-life president that we've ever had in terms of the policies and the judicial appointments that he did. And when it comes to anything regarding, you know, LGBT issues, I think whatever we can do at the federal level, he will do, you know, he will do exactly in order with our beliefs and our, our positions, again, regardless of whatever his personal beliefs are or his kids' beliefs are. So I'm pretty confident in that. Uh, but hey, look, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind and to withdraw my support at any time. You know, I don't, I don't owe anybody anything. And these are important issues that matter to me. I think if you have anything to add before I move on to the kind of the next subject I want to talk about. I mean, about. I guess, I guess, I mean, I yeah, guess the yeah. biggest argument for Trump 2.0 is a, he's a wrecking ball to the system, so to speak. He's like a giant middle finger. So that, you know, just a sculpture of a middle finger. So he, so just to add, add the benefit is having him in the white house plus DeSantis and the governor, because you don't want to lose two years of DeSantis being able to clean house in Florida. So there's an opportunity cost there, but you would probably get the best results if you had Trump, White House, DeSantis, DeSantis in Florida. That would technically on paper be the best results, but that assumes Trump can win. Um, so along the lines of Trump winning, I think Trump has a major liability and this has nothing to do with his policies or anything like that. And the fact that they are trying to screw him even after he's left office as a private citizen, they're trying to indict him and all these other things. Um, how much of a weakness or liability do you think that mounts to a candidacy? Assuming that they're trying to indict him in New York, that jury pool is going to be a Democrat voter block. You know, that's going to be the most anti-Trump voter pool that he can get outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, what hope is there that he can get acquitted on anything that they try to charge him with in New York? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how much of a liability it is, frankly. I think it's actually a rallying cry for the base. I mean, I saw I saw some reactions from individuals, you know, after they indicted him that they, you know, saying like, you know, I saw some people saying like, you know, I, I wasn't MAGA, but I'd crawl over broken glass to vote for Trump now. So I hope that spirit endures. In fact, that gets again to why I think there there's a there is a deeply symbolic, but I think 
it's not just symbolic because it'll have real it'll have real ramifications. I think there's something deeply symbolic about Trump running and winning again in 24, which says that, you know, this almost decade long, you know, political persecution at the hands of our corrupt, you know, our corrupt judicial system and these Democrat operatives, you know, failed because that's the point of it. Right. The guys, they want to keep him out so bad. They are willing to do anything to, you know, every every president has done with classified information what Donald Trump has done. And nobody else has been raided by the FBI and the DOJ, right? Like, I mean, e even this latest, this latest thing with that lady and, you know, the, it was alleged rape, but it wasn't rape. But well, she described rape as sexy. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there, there the is shock of them. Even. Yeah, seriously. But my point is there is it's like it is absolutely biased political persecution. And you guys know this. We're living through a day and age where we're developing a two tier justice system in our country. I mean, this is what happens in banana republicans where if you're a you're, if you're a friend of the regime, you get a certain treatment. And if you're against the regime, you know, you get sent away for 18 years like this one guy did, even though he never even stepped foot on the Capitol grounds. Right. And so, yeah. I was actually going to bring that up because Trump didn't do anything to fight for those people. So I think the idea that Trump is this symbol head of they're going after him uh, as a proxy for going after you. I don't know if that holds up as well when he, I would say, hung out the J6 prisoners out to dry. Uh, I was, and then meanwhile, DeSantis said that he looked into pardoning uh, the ones that are politically persecuted. I'm confident that the that the pardon of J6 prisoners would be absolutely high on Trump's priority list if he were back in the White House in you know in January 2025. I mean, I think I have, I have no doubt about that. I'm not doubtful, but he's re relatively reticent on the issue, I would say. And he had a chance to pardon them and didn't. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to. I'll be honest with you, Ray. I'd have to look like we're talking about we're talking about a period of like two weeks, right? Like we're talking about 15 days between J6 and J21 when Trump's out of office and, and what all charges could have been preemptively pardoned, uh, what all charges even existed in the system at that point in time. I'm just going to honestly say, I don't know. It may, I could probably, I could learn I, more I, about maybe that. Maybe he could do like a blank pardon for anything on January yeah, I mean, it, it I might. think that's the only thing that you could do. And I think it would hold up because that's legally how pardons you know, work, you know, in a, in a decreal sense, which is what the authority to pardon is. I mean, it might've been too little too late for. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm one of those guys who I'm happy to say, look, I don't know. Right. Like I, mean, I think baked, baked Alaska or whatever his name's a fed, but he was like joking. I went to jail for this guy, uh, you know, for trading cards guy. I, I think the question is, you know, are and I guess since you got to get up and leave, uh, I, I do want to say, is the Trump that we're going to see in January 2025, or at least the 2024 election cycle, is that going to be the same Trump that we saw in 2016? I, I don't even want to say, or 2020, because that was, Trump did a horrible job campaigning in 2020, campaigning on listening to Fauci and stuff. So, Because uh, that drove me nuts. Uh, but 2016 Trump. Are we going to see that Trump or are we going to see a different Trump? Because I, my fear is that we're going to see a different Trump. That has me going much more into DeSantis lane. 
Yeah, well, I'll try to I'll try to put it like this in closing here. Again, I want the man that the regime fears most, not what could ostensibly be considered to be the regime approved alternative. Even if we're sort of splicing the regime and saying it's the the GOP establishment preferred alternative, which I think is the case with DeSantis, and you can use that as a pro or a con, but I do think that the GOP establishment wants DeSantis as the as the you know as the candidate, and that in many ways. It's not the only reason, but that makes me not want him, right? Um, I want the man that the establishment is afraid of, whether that's the GOP establishment or the uniparty establishment or the national security state establishment in, uh, in, uh, in D.C. <laughs> William wants the man that the media wants him to think the regime fears the most. And that's from Nicholas, proclaimer the Messiah. Well, Nicholas, I'm glad you proclaimed the Messiah. It's just fun looking at the chats here on the edge. But it's like, I mean, first of all, I mean, I'll just say that let's uh, Nicholas, I appreciate the subtle insult to my intelligence and my ability to parse the news here, despite the fact that I've been, you know, it's like, okay, well, William in 2016 also wanted the man that everybody was saying had absolutely no chance of winning and endured like the scorn and the mocking of everybody who he would tell them, no, Trump's got a shot. And if you're, you know, you're discounting him at your own peril. So, you know, I could be wrong. Look, man, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think I'm being I don't think I'm being misled by the media into wanting Trump. You know, I wanted Trump in 2016 in the same way I want Trump today. And I guess to get back to your answer there, Ray, is because I'm confident that the man who was the most disruptive, the most pro-life president that we've ever seen, the man who is going to work tirelessly on behalf of the interests of your average American worker out there, you know, particularly with an unapologetic agenda, unapologetic agenda of American nationalism, at home and abroad is who we're going to get in the White House in January 2025. And unless something changes, which, hey, we're, we're a long ways out, that's where I am now. Well, I think you've done a good job uh, trying to sell Trump to me. I mean, it definitely w made me a lot toastier to the idea than I was. Um, but we'll see what type of Trump that we see on the campaign trail. He's a little off in nowhere's land from my periphery, because if you're on CNN, like, yeah, I didn't. You know, I'm not watching that. Or if you're on Truth Social, I'm definitely not going there. But uh, you definitely toasted me up to Trump some more. Uh, so I do appreciate that. I did want to, you know, any, I wanted any, to respect uh, that I disagreed with. Any quick thoughts on his VP potentials? Yeah, that's a good question. Look, I mean, me personally, I would, I would hate to see Trump try to pick like, um, try to pick like a regime friendly VP pick, right? Like I really, university hire. I would hate to see him pick Haley, uh, Nikki Haley, something like that. So I think he needs to find somebody who's like an unapologetic America first fighter, just like he is um, for, you know, for his uh, VP pick. I'm really not sure who, you know, who that is yet. Um, I mean, know, I have I have Reynolds as the favorite for both candidates. Who? Reynolds. Kim, Kim Reynolds. Reynolds. Iowa. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a possibility. Iowa, you know. Iowa's an important state, at least in the primaries. Um, so what was I going to say? Yeah, I mean, well, Ray, you know, like, again, like, we got a long way to go on this, guys. You know, there will be a lot of um, – there will be a debate. There will be policy proposals. As I always do encourage people is to, like, look at the actual policies that's being proposed. The, sched the Schedule F policy to me that Trump has proposed, which completely gut the civil state – the civil administrative, you know, workforce, I think is huge and give, give him the ability to control – the federal government on behalf of his agenda. Um, and I, I, I don't know if DeSantis is willing to do the same thing. I'm not saying he isn't. I just haven't seen him. I mean, he, he did go after, he has gone after Disney. 
in the state of Florida, which is huge. And as far as I can tell, even Netflix put out a documentary a couple of years ago. This is like early DeSantis term, noting that DeSantis did not sell out the sugar in his campaign. So you look at the two biggest industries in Florida, tourism and sugar. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how regime friendly he is because that's the regime in Florida. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean uh, that's a, that's a great point, right? I mean, look, I mean, and, I mean, I don't think Trump would have sold out to those people, but mm-hmm. man, you got your listeners are cracking me up, man. You got like you got like a bunch of disaffected. Oh, we have the best. <laughs> I love, I love cracking me up. Illusion of choice. It's not an election. It's a selection. Yeah, from M three Max. <laughs> Ironically, we had more freedom when we didn't have primaries and stuff. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, that cat's out of the bottle or whatever. You don't. Well, like guys, that. thanks for having me on. I think yes. I would love to, if I could close with more of like to put my more like theological hat on. I mean, I think that uh, I think that Christians need to approach you know politics you know with with as as a measure of a stewardship. We we don't need to infuse it with sort of like extra pietistic or spiritual language. You know, we live, we're on, as I said, as I said before, we're just because we're bound for a celestial city, it doesn't mean that the physical city we live in doesn't matter. Right. And like, you know, before God, if we can make choices that, you know, we can defend with our conscience and scripture, I think we have freedom to do so. I think there are some things that are off limits. And I think as it stands today, it's a matter of Christian freedom before the Lord, whether you want to support DeSantis or support Trump or even support somebody else. And so I hope that as Christians, we can have a different approach to this round of primary politics than we did in 2016, when I was told someone like, like myself, you know, was in sin, was a racist, was a xenophobe, because I wanted to see Donald Trump win. So even the fact you guys are willing to have Man, me on the dialogue, that's, appreciate That type of dialogue, or the whole Christians being maligned for voting for Trump is why I voted for Trump in 2020. It's not right. even because of Trump. It's because I wanted to stand with my brothers. Uh, who are getting maligned that way. So I'll uh, close by saying... Uh, Can I answer this question from Montana Viking? <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't seen it, but let, yeah, let me throw it up. Okay, so Montana Viking is asking, can we support atheists for public office? That's a great question. And I would say that I believe, you know, look, uh, you know, and he's, he's trying to couch it in my Christian nationalist terms. Uh, I would prefer to support born-again Christians for public office. But if you're, you know... At the end of the day, in, in America, as it stands right now, if I have a choice on a ticket between somebody who is a self-professing Christian, you know, but, you know, they say they're Christian, but they support abortion, they support the trans agenda, they support open borders, and somebody who says, I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I think abortion is a violation of the natural law because the baby is clearly a human being, I'm for banning abortion, I'm for stopping the trans agenda, I'm for closing our borders, Guys, I'm going to vote for the atheist that has that policy platform over the self-professed Christian that has an absolutely destructive policy platform. And I, I, and I don't see why, according to scripture, that I should not be free to vote for somebody who isn't a Christian who has the prudential and wise policy platform that's being presented to me. So I think essentially, answer, I think the answer is yes, though it's not preferable. But again, we don't live, we don't live in a perfect world. Uh, yeah, you could vote third party, sure. Would you rather vote uh, James Lindsay or Jeb Bush? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Pass. Oh, Pass. come on. It's Jeb Bush easy. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. The, you know, because of, 
you know, the life issue and the tranny issue. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Actually, the easy uh, choice. I was going to say, Bush I was gonna say the pretty conservative. Uh, <laughs> Jeb Bush actually sounded pretty conservative in 2020 or 2016. He just no one wanted Jeb Bush in 2016. And Fox News is like, you want Jeb Bush? And everyone's like, no, we don't. And that's yeah. why he flopped. I mean, you can't say that Jeb or Ron DeSantis is Jeb Bush 2.0, like some people are trying to say, because people wanted Ron DeSantis to run. No one wanted Jeb Bush to run. Yeah, that's silly. I mean, I think there are some really silly criticisms that are coming out against Trump. I will but, say against DeSantis. I will say this, too. We all need to work not to pigeonhole our preferred candidates. Well, we don't, to pigeonhole uh, those we oppose off of their, say, like worst supporters, Right. Like, right. you know, that's just an intellectual exercise. We should like, all not all do. Trump supporters are Laura Loomer and not all DeSantis supporters are Paul Ryan. Yeah, that's right. Although I will say, like, I mean, look, again, if um, if it's true, if it's true that behind the scenes, like Paul Ryan is trying to get trying to get DeSantis to run. Well, that does concern me. I, I, I think very poorly of Paul Ryan's tenure as Speaker of the House. Um, and oh, I yeah. wish. I wish that Trump hadn't backed him. Honestly, Paul Ryan owed his you know, continued speakership under Trump's first uh, the first two years of Trump's term to Trump's you know, backing up him. And in the future, I, I, I would hope he wouldn't do something like that. We need an we need a hard knuckle fighter, you know, bare knuckle fighter as the speaker. And, uh, you know, honestly, we need some change of Republican center leadership, too. No doubt right. about that. Uh, let me. No, wait, we're not doing meme review tonight. Uh... So let me just close by saying, if you like Evangelical Dark Web, don't forget to hit that like button on your way out and subscribe if you are new. Uh, we have a uh, Patreon-like system at evangelicaldarkweb.org slash join. That's linked in the description below. But we have a free newsletter that gets you uh, Christian news in your inbox, bypassing big tech censorship each and every day. So check that out. There are more uh, articles than live streams, obviously, or videos or podcasts or anything like that. So more articles than that and extra content if you are a paid Patreon-like subscriber. So anyway, we'd like to thank William Wolf for coming on and uh, for the friendly disagreement that hopefully puts the conversation in the right direction as opposed to the wrong direction or whatever you see on cable news if you watch cable news these days. So uh, have a blessed night, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate you having me thank on. You. God bless you, brothers.